Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Welcome this week to our MI3 Audio Edition. Fascinating character about to have a conversation with. He's been, uh, well, arrived in Australia 20 years ago, I believe. Danny Bass, welcome. Former CEO of IPG, former Chief Investment Officer at WPP, a News Corp, News Interactive uh, executive for a decade in Australia, has a lot of uh, travels around the industry, and he's been out for close enough to six months, I think. Is that right, Danny? Yeah, good morning, Paul. Six months. Six months. So we're going to hear Danny's reflections from the outside of, on, on the industry, and, and he's been uh, on gardening leave. He's got a fantastic tomato patch, I understand, and um, the tomatoes are booming. But more importantly, we wouldn't talk about um, from the outside, from the observations from the outside, the peculiarity of Australia. Australia or not. But Danny, six months, what, what have you been doing and what do you make of what's happening in the industry at the moment? What have I been doing? So I've been doing what I said I wanted to and the reason why I decided to take a break, which was just that. Right? After three and a half big years at IPG, um, I felt it was important to um, just detach myself from an industry that I've been very, very close to for the best part of 20 years um, and just relax and enjoy myself and um, and I'm very, very fortunate to be in a position to be to be able to do that. So six months down the track, um, I think I can tick that box that um, you know I'm feeling refreshed and recharged. In terms of you know as an outsider looking into the industry. Well, hang on a minute. You just gave us a hint there. Refreshed and recharged. That means Danny Mass might be up to a few things. Do we expect some some sort of action from you in um, in, in coming months? Shall we say? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's nice that the phone is still ringing. But in terms of um, keeping busy and, and what's next, there's, there is something on the horizon and uh, and um, I'll be talking about that in the next few weeks. Well, hopefully you'll be talking to me, Danny. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so on to uh, the, the, the broader industry macro observations um, and particularly probably about what marketers and brand side need to be thinking about and aware of in, in around media and media agencies and that whole part of the business? I think the main thing that I've, that I've seen, um, I mean, I would love to say I've completely detached myself from all trade press and trade media and LinkedIn and everything else and um, completely isolating myself, but, but you can't, right? You, you, I still feel extremely passionate about this industry. I'm certainly not looking at stuff as much as I used to, but um, I'm spending more time to look at um, content and editorial about this industry and it is interesting that you form a different view when you're not living in that world 24-7. The one thing that is upsetting, the one thing that I think is right at the heart of the industry right now is the negativity, right? And as an outsider looking in and, and that, that's what I consider myself over the last six or seven months, there's still a, a whirlwind of negativity around our industry. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's a right reflection. And I think it's almost self-fulfilling in terms of where we're heading. And Is that the industry being negative about itself or is that the negativity coming from the outside, from others saying not no, worth it? No, I, I think the industry, I, I think the role of, of trade press, I think the way we talk ourselves down um, – you know, I've always been very passionate about this industry and I'm very passionate about the great things that we do each and every day on behalf of our clients and the role we play in driving the economy forward. 
But if you knew nothing about this industry and you just watched trade press or spoke to a certain amount of people over the course of a couple of weeks, you wouldn't be coming away going, that's an industry I want to be part of. And I don't actually think that's true. I think it's just the way that we're perceived. I think there's an opportunity, there's a massive opportunity. I know the, the MFA X a few weeks ago tried to, tried to um, address this. But I think it's really important that, um, that, that we start getting on the front foot and start talking the industry up because otherwise it's, it's quite self-fulfilling. I, my view is this is particularly peculiar to the Australian market uh, in terms of the sorts of uh, smash-ups that go on publicly and the, the, the commentary and the trade press coverage. Uh, you don't see that quite like this in the US with any of the trade uh, publications in the US. You don't see it in the UK. Is that right or do you see it differently? There's a viciousness. Right. to it, certainly, that you don't see in other markets. I think we're a very accountable industry, particularly compared to what we were before. There's a lot of voices who, who want to who wanna shout louder than, than the next. But ultimately, is that good for the industry? And, um, and my, my time out of it and looking in is that I don't think it is. So we're going to come back to there's some, some couple of really interesting points you make around uh, sort of the mental health and even LinkedIn and social media uses because you're, you're off uh, – Facebook, and you're certainly off social media, I think it's still the case, but we'll come back around to that. If we just loop back to uh, the uh, outside the negativity stuff, if you're, if you're sitting there and you had to sit in the seat of a, of a CMO or a brand marketer, where would you start uh, looking at media and the, and, the, and, the, and the sector, the media and media agency sector at the moment? What would, what would, you, what would you be doing? Well, look, I, I've been very, very fortunate. You know, my time at WPP, my time at IPG, I got to work and, and see some of you know, the biggest brands in Australia, um, new brands as well as established brands. Well, let's be clear there. So at, at WBP, you probably had, was it $2 billion in, in investment dollar money going through? 2.6. 2.6 billion. And that IPG, I don't know, range was Yeah, what? I mean, we, we were heading towards two. Two. I mean, yeah. we, we won or retained half a billion dollars last year. Right. Um, I mean, after a billion dollars, people probably stopped counting. Right? <laughs> but um, big strong local brands and, and global brands. And, and I don't envy the role of a CMO, right? Right now, it's, it's a difficult role. I mean, what's the average tenure now? Is it two years? 2.2 2. 2 or something, I think, yeah. In a lot of businesses, the, the role of CMO is, is becoming obsolete. Um, you know, we did a – we continued to look at how many CMOs that we had actually were on the board of a business, and I think we could name one, right? So – CMOs are becoming more and more detached from the room where the big decisions are being made. CMOs are being asked to do more every year with less. So they are, you know, they're in a difficult position. And also most companies now look at quarterly results. So like I said this to you before, uh, this is a few years ago, but a marketer once said to me, Danny, I'm basically re-interviewed for my job every three months. Right. Right? And I think the challenge with that, it leads to short-term behavior. Because if you know you've had a bad quarter and you know you're going to be in that boardroom in the next four, five, six weeks or six months down the line, unless you're a very strong person who can really stand behind their vision, their goal of long-term brand building, you're probably going to default to, okay, well, what can we do to put some metrics on this? And when I'm in front of the board, numbers are looking good. All right. And that pressure that spills then onto partners and to, in your case, in, in two instances, you know, with Group M and IPG, what happens in the, in the downstream relationships and downstream partnerships? What, what impact does that have? And, we'll, and ultimately, we'll get to, to sort of the, the pressure and the mental health and the stuff that's on people and inside agencies or inside the sector. But what happens? Invariably, it's, it's, it's not good. 
um, you know, it can lead to, well, let's just pitch, you know, for, for no real reason other than, hey, I can save some money here. Um, and I get that, right? You know, if, if, you're, if you're under pressure, you can put a pitch together um, that you can then go in front of the board and say, hey, look, we've just saved a million dollars on cost. I don't agree with it, but I, but I understand it. Um, if a marketer or a CMO is told to cut their staff by 10, 15%, that pressure then gets put onto the agency. The agency won't get a, a larger fee to cover that, to, to cover those roles. So again, what might be you know, five, six, 10 people working on an account might now be doing the job of 13 to 14. That will never work out in a good way for anyone. So inevitably that pressure that's been driven down to the marketer will get pushed back onto the agency unless the relationship is super strong, unless there's an understanding that to do this, we need to get paid properly. But also from an agency perspective, being very transparent to the client saying, this is what you're paying for. Now, James Warburton, you talked about MFAX uh, the other week. James Warburton was in the hot seat with me, which was sort of a short form interview on stage. Now he sort of on one hand praised agencies and on the other hand said the problem is their remuneration's um, wrecked and in fact what happens is they go into pitches like you talk about with pressure from them to reduce fees from the, from the client side and the agencies will go in with unreasonable pitch proposals that ultimately he says expects the media owners to carry the can on that race to the bottom on. I think he's right to an extent in terms of sometimes the media owners are the, in the sandwich in between the agency and the client. Most spend commitments, look, it's, it's, up to the, it's up to the media owners to whether or not they want to accept those terms. But more often than not, when, if you're pitching for a piece of business and they come and say, look, we want to know what you would get as these rates on Metro TV, regional TV, at a home, whatever it is, it's usually just better buying, right? Because the incumbent's been sat on it for three or four years, you look at it with different eyes and a great investment person will see where the value is. So more often than not, it's, it's about buying in other areas or buying different times or spots that get you to that point that you've committed to a client. Is there anything left? Is there any fat left on the media owner's side? Because that has been a, a price that's been going on for a long time. Is it, you know, at what point is there bone? It's probably not too far from, from today. The, the challenge is... The infrastructure costs, and let's just use TV, right? Because it always sort of comes back to TV at some point. The cost of running a network um, has not got any cheaper than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's probably gone up, right? If you look at 20 years ago, top 10 shows, rated shows outside of sport or news, there'd be a high portion of them that would be foreign import, right? Friends, Desperate Housewives, whatever it is. They don't rate anymore, right? Because people are streaming them and seeing them. So you've got to produce more local content. That's invariably more expensive than, than import. Um, so your cost of getting that stuff to air is more expensive. The audience is decreasing, and that's not a criticism of TV. That just is the reality. So a client would look at it and say, well, we're paying more to reach less, and that's not getting into the brand-building argument. That's just simple economics when it comes down to a, to, to a pitch. So the structural challenges that, that TV has if they're to be helped or saved by advertising, then the model needs, needs to change because you know, every year there's more choice to invest client spend. You know, the explosion of other channels, the explosion of digital. Marketing spend has not increased a great deal over the last 10 years. 
So they've actually done an incredible job. What happens in the next couple of years in your mind, though, for those 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 uh, companies, those legacy media channels? I mean, I, I read with interest uh, Fitzy's comments regarding Amazon, right, and 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 the threat that Amazon. This is Anthony Fitzgerald, the former CEO yeah. of MCN. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think he's I think he's right. It's almost like you know with an AFL game, you know, the fans before the game with the big banner. It's like the traditional media companies are the fans holding that banner, and instead of twenty-one AFL players running towards them, there's a 18-wheel truck right. with the name Amazon at the side and behind it there's two tanks, one with Facebook, one with Google. <laughs> yes, right. And then uh, and then behind it there's the army of, of, um, of tech. And that's a, that's a hard thing to stop, but it's only going to get harder. Right. Right? I think one of the things that will be interesting with the US election, you know, a lot of the Democratic candidates are talking about ba- breaking up big tech. Right. The only thing that's going to slow them down is um, is changing regulation. So if if the if the big structural and pressures hit uh, legacy media owners, it's also going to hit the media agency sector in some way too. There'll be impacts there because there's so much of the, well, the way the business is geared at the moment is actually with media. So what what happens to that part of the sector? I, I think agencies are probably more protected in the short term, as those tech companies are still spending, but ultimately. If you're an agency of big tech company A, over time, they will take more and more of what you do in-house. Mm. That's just the reality of what it is. But for everything that's been said about media agencies over the past couple of years, and there's been a lot, I reckon most of them are growing more than they ever have before. And most of them are investing in tech in a way that shows that they're going to be around for the next few years. Did you definitely see that at IPG before you left then? You're the media, because obviously IPG was a, was a broad group, but the, the media brands, would that was all happening. Yeah, I mean, media brands globally and certainly locally, um, we reduced the amount of brands that we had, but we increased right, quite dramatically the amount of people we had. You were also on the Media Federation board in which you sort of, I think you're one of the lead protagonists for sort of shutting down all the awards programs that the media agencies were involved in uh, and sort of reconfiguring it, taking a year off and reconfiguring for what we saw at MFAX um, a couple of weeks ago. Why did you do that? Why did you see you needed that the industry needed to reset? And interestingly, on the day, there was a lot of talk around, a lot of discussion around the whole, this, this, this pressure that's on people, uh, the churn rates, uh, mental health. We'll get to that in a bit. Why did you shut down? There was certainly there was an overkill in terms of the amount of awards. Right? And just from an IPG perspective, my view was we're investing so much time and energy and effort. Ad News Awards, Mumbrella Awards, BNT Awards, FE Awards, whatever it may be. Right? And, and each one of those submissions takes takes a lot you then had you know some negative stories about who was winning and why were they winning and then ultimately the mfa awards that year um i thought didn't reflect what we should be as an industry right it was just another awards awards event didn't really distinguish itself from from any other um you know some of these awards nights they seem to go on for weeks you know there's like 45 awards to sort of sell tables and everything else um, and don't get me wrong, you know, awards, awards are great, you know, and they're probably not great for anyone else in the room if you don't win. But, you know, I've seen the impact it has on a team, right? And it's, it's incredible when you see people who've worked so hard on a campaign or, you know, you win Agency of the Year or Best Culture or whatever it is. You see it firsthand and it means a lot. So I think for me, with the MFA Awards, they had to be our night of nights, right? They had to show what we as an industry stood for. And it had to involve clients. It had to involve 
deeper levels of more junior people in our industry. We had to talk about the effectiveness of, of what we do and how we do it. And it had to be a, a night that people came away from and went, you know, this is what I'm, this is what it's all about. This is what I'm part of. And the only way I think fair to the media, trade media owners to pull out of the awards was to also do the same. Right. Right. I think, I think, to, to actually for actually to mean something and this wasn't penalizing any particular trade press it was let's just pause for a year right and, and then let's just work out what it is and then then we're back on but from what i saw i wasn't at the mfa but from what i saw online and what i heard it was it was a fantastic day and a great night so let's get to one of the main themes uh, on that which is uh, there was a lot of discussion around mental health and pressure in the workplace churn people young people now, I think Unlimited has a stat that talks about um, the, the level of uh, mental uh, mental health issues and angst in the industry are about 20% higher than the national average. Uh, and so there's something going on in, in this sector that is uh, above and beyond what happens across industry. I've never heard the stat that is 20% more. We do a lot of work with Batia um, at IPG. I think it's their one in four... Australians between the age of 20 and 30 at some time are suffering from um, some form of mental illness. Th- this is a tough industry that has very high expectation. Because of that, if you do have issues around mental health, you could find yourself in an environment that's, that's not good for you. I think as an industry, we've done as much, if not more, than any other. Certainly what I can see. I know from my time in the MFA how, how seriously... The, uh, the other board members took that. The challenge, and it's a big challenge, is how you can fundamentally change your business and change your industry and the way it operates to make that stuff actually count. So, you know, you can put in as many employee hotlines as you want. You can bring in yoga five times a day. You can, um, you know, bring in meditation, all the things that people do and you know, wellness days and everything else. But they're not fundamentally changing the problem, right? They, they, they might put a Band-Aid on it, they might make the work environment a little bit better, but if people are suffering from genuine mental health issues and that's brought around by workload and pressure and environment, then there's only so much of that stuff, the yoga, the meditation, the, the employee helplines that, um, that can help. So what you need to do is fundamental change and that's what comes back to things like pitching, comes back to winning business on good terms. Um, Client of ex- expectations? Ma- massive, massively. So you could, you could, as an agency lead, you could bring in best practice, mental health and team support. If you have a set of clients that don't align with that, it doesn't matter. Right? You know, there's a lot of talk around um, flexible working conditions, particularly around mums and helping mums come back to work and, um, two days from home, you know, three days in the office or job share, which is fantastic. It's absolutely what we need to do. But it's interesting when it comes to the client, when you say, hey, look, so this is how we're going to manage your account. We've got this, this lady who's going to manage it from Monday to Wednesday, and then it's going to hand over to another primary carer Thursday to Friday. Not many clients will agree to that. So you've got to really explain to the client what you're trying to achieve. You've got to show the benefit that, Having two people working on your account, job share, you're actually going to get more from that. But flexible working or taking stress off people, if you're serious, means exactly that, right? If you're saying, 
you down tools at six o'clock and I don't want you to check your emails or, you know, like we've done in Germany and France where I think sending emails is actually illegal now over the weekend. Um, I didn't know that. Is that the case? Yeah, I, th- right. I think it's France. Right. Yeah. Um, that would be France. France yeah, would of course. Be yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, the, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You Correct, know? yeah. Yes, we've made enormous strides forward in, in addressing mental health. But, you know, the, stat, the stats show that at any one time, if you've got a business of five to 600 people, just Australian stats, someone in your organisation is walking around with dark clouds over them and thinking, thinking bad things. The other real bit to this is, as a CEO, you want to come out and talk about your business and what you're doing in terms of mental health and support. You've got to make sure that it's the managers on the floor who are getting that support in order to do that. And so it goes to a broader debate too, I think, Danny, around uh, if you look at society in the level of uh, teen depression, uh, teen suicide, self-harm, all those sorts of things, the, and, and the FOMO bit, the stuff that sits around, that a lot gets pushed back onto uh, social media and some of, the, some of the impacts that it is having. Is there something about that in our industry as well? We over-index on social. We do a lot more stuff than sort of the average uh, sector does because of the nature of the business. Um, is there is there a link there at all? It may not be causal, but is it correlations? Absolutely. You, as a leader of a business, you have to be aware that those issues that are being brought to the fore through social media will will impact the workplace. Well, you're off social. You went off how long ago, and, and why? Four or five years ago. And why? And 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 are you um are you kind of sort of twitching because of it? You do when you when you stop. But for me, it was what was this thing adding to my life? And, and I sort of made a decision that actually it's probably changing my behaviours in ways that I didn't really like. You know, with so much activity in, in the industry around influences and social media, and did you didn't feel that sort of was detrimental in terms of your understanding of what was going on in, in the broader market? No, because you, you have people who, are, who do that. You have to have a good view on everything that's going on, right? But you don't need to be an expert yeah. on, on everything. You, you know, I was part of the team that launched MySpace, so... I know how quickly a social media platform can rise and how quickly it becomes uncool and, and, and disappears. MySpace in Australia or yeah, globally? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back when Rupert Murdoch bought it. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was incredible for about six months. <laughs> Personally, I think Instagram is still an incredible platform for brands. I, I really do. What's your media? What's Danny Bass's media consumption? What does it look like in a day, in a week? What, what, um, what are you doing? Well, I've, I've, you know, I've got a couple of my news websites that are my go-tos from uh, locally, the Oz and the Finn, bit of the SMH, BBC and the Guardian. So that, that, those are my so my five yep. go-to for, for for various reasons. I still um, still buy magazines. Part of the job is a lot of travel, right? So I still enjoy I, I still enjoy a magazine. You know, mm. particularly ads as well. You know, yeah. you, you pick up British GQ, and, and the ads are as much a part of the content. You've gone to magazines, audiovisual. What are you doing? Are you streaming only? Are you still free to wear? Well, you... first of all, because I'm very, very, very fortunate. Underline that and highlight it. To, You're going to say books, to, aren't to you? Have some, no, to have some time. You've got time to read long form content, right? And there's a, there's a there's an app, the, the Athletic. I don't know if you've yes, seen the Athletic. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's um, a sports startup, right? Just sport. Yeah, um, I think seventy dollars for the year, which is phenomenal. If if you enjoy sport, right now, it's great as a consumer but as a as an ad guy i'm saying well where's the ads <laughs> and there isn't right. there isn't any which is not great for us but i hope that business model works it seems to be working well in in the u.s and the, the, they've got we're approaching he- 100 million users and, the, and they've got heavy in in uh, in the uk so i think that's an interesting model 
Streaming's still relatively cheap, but you look at the SBS on demand, right? the slight they have, the depth of quality content is absolutely amazing, mm. right? You, likewise, you, know, you look at 7 and 9 and what and 10 have got for free, it's sort of cursed by choice, right? It's, are you floating across all of those then or is there, are you down to a suite? Well, there's just too many, right? You, mm. you cannot, I think in a similar way, you know, we're talking about the way we are um, being reprogrammed by social media. I think we're also being reprogrammed by streaming sites like Netflix where um, there's too much choice and also as well we're being conditioned to not be interrupted. So, you know, one of the fundamental changes something like Foxtel has got, which has got a great slight in-depth, you know, they're doing what they can around pricing and user experience. They're still running ads. God bless them. Thank you. <laughs> you know, a lot of people's livelihood depends on that. But, People are being reprogrammed to get annoyed if they're interrupted. Mm. So as an industry, that's an enormous challenge for us. I mean, I, I fundamentally believe, even though they continue to deny it, that Netflix will flick on ads at some stage and you'll have a two-stream option, which is um, premium, no ads, and, and free or, or, or uh, metered, and you get ads. Right. I'm not sure TV can do any more than it's doing. Right? You know, It's gone out aggressively, it's educated the market, it's backed it up with with data, um, they're investing heavily, um, you know, sport still, still rating really, really well. Um, you know, 10 seem to have got a little bit of momentum, um, which will keep everyone on the toes. Nine have been in the ascendancy for two years and, and clearly James will, uh, do everything they can at seven. So it's, it's going to be a, um, um, a strong year for TV next year, but it goes back to what we said, the actual costs of running these networks may not be able to be supported just through ads alone because mm. every year there are more people um, approaching clients and agencies to get a larger portion of that spend. And there's not enough to go around. That's, that's fundamentally it. Final question, Danny, is around your take on uh, the industry's emerging leaders. Now, you've, we've talked about this before where you're not convinced that the next level, the the, the next gen actually want to be, want to climb the ladder and want to be at the top because of what's required and what they, where their priorities are. Explain a little bit of that and what does that mean for the industry? First up, we've got incredible talent in, in all areas, maybe a bit less so in investment, which um, saddens me greatly. The investment's not seen as the, the career within the media agency anymore. I think we've got to, we've got to work on that. As opposed to what? So if it's not investment, where, where is the interest? So people are moving into data analytics, search, social, strategy, uh, production. Um, but I think still 60% of people who work in our industry are in an investment role. Right. But it's just not seen as, as a long-term career for these people anymore. Not, not for everyone, um, but it's certainly not the role it used to be. And it needs to be. I think as an industry, we've got to get really passionate about investment again. So make investment sexy. The fundamental problem people who you would look looked at five, ten years ago in similar roles, go, right, he or she is a future MD, GM, CEO, are looking at people in those roles now and going, no, I don't want that role. Right? That's not what I aspire to be. You know, we look at the, the churn rate, we look at the drop-off rate when people turn 30, and that's a real worry because people are using the industry to, um, you know, to, to experience more and, and get more credentials and help them set their own business up or move on to the US or London or more of the not now China. But I just don't get the sense there's a generation of people looking at leadership roles as they are today saying that's, that's the gig I want. 
and that and, we, and that's a big that's a big problem. How much of that is to do with the the structure and the way holding companies have operated? Because you know mm-hmm. those headquarters in the US, France, the UK, they want their blood. There's a lot of pressure on on, on country heads to to deliver. And it's not necessarily aspirational for, for younger people to go, I'm gonna, I just want to climb the ladder to get caned. That's it. You've articulated it very well that um, you know, the remit of a local lead now is much narrower than it used to be. And to be a local lead, you have to sign up for that. Right? You, everyone understands it. You, 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 you get the badge, you get the gun, and, and that's your role. The generation coming through look at that and go, no. No, thanks. I don't want to do that. Mm. Right? And I'm aspirational in terms of, setting up my own business, um, travel. You know, I think that's one of the great things our industry offers any youngster coming in that, you know, work hard, build your reputation. In a number of years, you can be in pretty much any, any major capital city in the world. There's not many industries you can do that. What we've got to get better at is when those people are on the way back, so they've done their stint in New York, they've done their stint in London, we're picking them up on the way. It's like a sports agent managing someone's career. Right. So it's like, we're going to plot your career for the next 10 years, right? And at year two, you're off to Singapore. At year four, you're in London or, you know, we're going to put you on this course, we're going to train you, we're going to give you ex- expertise in all these areas. And we are developing that next generation of leaders because the next generation need a very different skill set. You look at the change in the workplace, you look at the requirements, and you know, we spoke about mental health, but there's a lot more stuff that goes into running a business now. So you've got to be able to manage a regional exec, a global exec, you've got to manage a margin that you've been given. So that's a lot of stuff mm. you would put into a future leader, right, and getting them to that position. And to be clear, we have got an incredible talent base. It's our job to make sure that they're given every chance to do that. And that they want to. And that they want to. Yeah. Great conversation, Danny Bass. Look, I look forward to um, looping back around, and it sounds like in a couple of weeks with your news, but um, uh, all the best, and we will have you back on for some bigger industry conversations. Good to talk. Brilliant. Thanks, Paul. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.